0: Good morning, my name's Peter. Please join with me as we read from the good news that the disciple Mark wrote in chapter 15 on page 1022 if you are using one of the church Bibles. Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 33, the death of Jesus. At noon darkness came over the whole land until 3 in the afternoon at 3 in the afternoon jesus cried out in a loud voice eloi eloi lama sabachthani which means my god my god why have you forsaken me when some of those standing near heard this they said listen he's calling elijah someone ran filled in uh, filled a sponge with wine vinegar was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter.
1: We're going to be looking at those few short verses this morning, but before we do that, let's pray. Our dear, gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd be teaching us uh, many things by it this morning as we reflect on the greatest sacrifice that you made for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. It has been 12 years since Steve Irwin died on the 4th of September in 2006. Steve was on location at Bat Reef near Port Douglas here in Queensland. He was taking part in a production of a a documentary series called The Ocean's Deadliest, He was snorkeling in chest deep water when he was attacked by a massive stingray six and a half feet across. The stingray's barb pierced his heart and he bled to death before he could reach the hospital. For many of us the death of Steve Irwin, the death of our fearless energetic crocodile wrestling icon uh, was a terrible accident, a huge tragedy and a great Anticlimax uh, to his life and career. Now this morning we're not looking at Steve Irwin's death, we're looking at the death of Jesus Christ on the cross in Mark chapter 15. And for many people, Jesus' death on the cross seems a little similar to Steve Irwin's death. A terrible accident, a huge tragedy and a great anticlimax to his life and and career. Jesus' life had been going so well. He had spent the last three years of his life demonstrating his awesome supernatural power. He could walk on water. He could calm a thunderstorm with a word. He could heal the sick with a touch. He could teach with incredible wisdom. And then, out of the blue it seems, he gets arrested. And then he loses his case at his trial, and then he gets condemned to death, and then he gets flogged, and then he gets taken up to this place called Golgotha, and then he gets nailed to a cross between two criminals. And as he's hanging there on the cross, his opponents there, the religious leaders, begin to taunt him and insult him. They say stuff like, come down from the cross and save yourself, and he saved others, but he can't save himself. And what does Jesus do in response to these taunts? Does he show his enemies who's boss? Does he call down lightning from heaven to give them a hiding? No. His response is anticlimactic. He doesn't save himself. He does nothing. But there's still this expectation in the air that surely... Surely, someone will come to Jesus' rescue. I mean, God's done all sorts of amazing things for him in the past. Surely, there's going to be some kind of divine intervention. Surely, something spectacular is going to happen. Then, in verse 33, darkness covers the whole land in the middle of the day. I can just imagine the people in the crowd at this point thinking, hold on to your hats, this is going to be good. And then... Jesus cries out in a loud voice in verse 34, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean, my God, my God, come down and save me from my enemies. It actually means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God doesn't save Jesus. In fact, if anything... It seems as though God has abandoned him. Another anticlimax. But people in the crowd still have hope. In verse 35, uh, they mishear Jesus, and they think he's actually saying, Eli, Eli, not Eloi, Eloi. They think he's calling for Elijah to come and rescue him. The prophet Elijah, you see, was a famous prophet in Jewish history. Elijah had performed miracles. He never died. He was taken up to heaven in a charity of fire. And the people back then had an expectation that Elijah would return before the promised Messiah came. So for for a brief moment, there's this glimmer of hope that Jesus is going to get rescued by Elijah. But Jesus is dying quickly. He's running out of fluids And someone in the crowd is concerned that Jesus is going to die and dehydrate before Elijah can come and rescue him. So in verse 36, that person runs to get Jesus a drink. They soak a sponge in sour wine, which was sort of the equivalent of Gatorade back then, real thirst quencher. They they stick it on a stick and they offer it up to Jesus to suck on and drink. The hope is that Jesus will live just a little bit longer, long enough for Elijah to have time to come down and save him. People are watching with bated breath. Will Elijah come and save Jesus from the cross? Will anyone come and save Jesus? This is the climactic moment. But what happens, verse 37, with a loud cry... Jesus breathes his last breath. He just dies. Elijah doesn't save Jesus. God doesn't save Jesus. Jesus doesn't save himself. No one saves Jesus. Jesus just breathes his last breath and dies. What an anticlimax. This anticlimactic death of Jesus raises a very interesting question for us this morning. If Jesus really was the Son of God, why didn't anyone save Him? Especially God, who Jesus claimed to be His Father. Why did Jesus die on a cross feeling God forsaken? Was He really the Son of God like He claimed to be? Hold that thought because then something really strange happens in this narrative. The centurion, who was in charge of Jesus' crucifixion, after he sees the way Jesus dies, he says in verse 39, surely this man was the Son of God. Now, that's really strange for a whole heap of reasons. Now, to be fair, The centurion probably doesn't understand the full weight of what he's saying, but at the very least, he is expressing conviction that this man who's just died in front of him is somehow divine. This guy's not a sentimental person. He's a Roman army officer in charge of a century of soldiers, a hundred soldiers. He's not one of Jesus' followers. He's not a fan of Jesus. He's not biased towards Jesus in any way. His job is to execute Jesus... And he's probably seen hundreds of crucifixions before. So what makes this crucifixion different? Why on earth would this tough Roman centurion call the person he's just executed the Son of God? Well, Mark's already told us. Look at what he says. When the centurion saw the way Jesus died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. The way Jesus died on the cross was what convinced the centurion that Jesus was the Son of God, and it was not the way normal people died from crucifixion. Crucifixion is death by asphyxiation and exhaustion. When you are hanging on a cross, the only way to breathe is to lift your entire body weight, which is hanging from the huge nails in your wrists and ankles. You can lift yourself up and take a breath. That causes searing pain. That eventually becomes too painful and tiring, and you eventually die from exhaustion. You run out of oxygen, you slip into unconsciousness, and you die. But that's not how Jesus dies. Look at at verse 37 again. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. This sentence is a bit of an understatement. Jesus doesn't just let out a cry. Jesus screams. This isn't just a loud cry. Imagine the most horrid, blood-curdling scream you've ever heard. You don't do that when you are totally exhausted and asphyxiated and completely out of breath. The centurion has seen plenty of crucifixions before, this doesn't normally happen. Now, imagine at the same time that the sky has gone black halfway through the day. And also imagine that at the same time Jesus is screaming, the earth begins to shake. That's what another gospel tells us. That's what the centurion sees. The centurion did not see Jesus get supernaturally saved from the cross But when he sees the way that Jesus dies, he recognises that there's something more going on. Something divine is happening on the cross. But before you can understand what was happening on the cross, the first thing you need to realise is that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't an accident or a tragedy. It was premeditated. It was planned the whole time. Back in Mark chapter 8, ages before his crucifixion, Jesus knew how he was going to die. This is what it says in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Jesus then began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The crucifixion did not take Jesus by surprise. When he went to Jerusalem for the last time, he knew what was waiting for him there. When he ate ate the last supper with his disciples in the upper room, he knew that it would be his last. When he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew the pain that was awaiting him. When he was arrested by the authorities, he didn't put up a fight. When he was interrogated before the religious leaders and before Pilate, he didn't defend himself, he knew exactly what was going to happen. The crucifixion was not a giant hiccup in Jesus' plans, crucifixion was the plan. That means that Jesus' death on the cross was not the anticlimax climax to his life and ministry, it was the climax, it was the high point. It was the main thing that Jesus came to achieve on this earth. Jesus didn't come to this earth primarily to teach or to heal or to perform miracles. Jesus came to this earth to die. He came to this earth to experience death on a cross. Why? Why? Well, it gives us a hint of the answer earlier on in Mark chapter 10, verses 45. Jesus told his disciples, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus claimed that he had come to this earth to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom if you've watched enough movies with kidnapping in it, is usually a sum of money that's paid for the release of a captive. Jesus claims to be a ransom payment for us. You see, human beings are captives. The human race has rebelled against God. We have rebelled against our own Creator, And because of our rebellion, because of our high treason against the creator of the universe, in our normal natural state, we are under the judgment of death. And we spend our lives trapped in a prison called death. And this is where it gets a little tricky. Because sometimes when the Bible talks about death, it's not talking about non-existence. It's not talking about a state of being in which your body ceases to function. It's talking about separation from God, being cut off from your Creator, the one who gives you life and meaning and purpose. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. We have a a Muslim friend from Iran who's been coming to the life course here at Southside for the last six weeks. Her husband is stuck on Nauru at the moment, and the only reason that she got off Nauru is because she was pregnant. After she came to Australia by herself, she gave birth to a beautiful little boy called Arton. He's not quite one. And he has never seen his dad, except by Skype. Now, do you know what that probably feels like for Arton's dad? It probably feels like death. Why? Because he's cut off from one of his most important relationships in life. Arden's dad is cut off from his wife and from his little child. Now, that kind of captures the same sentiment that the Bible is talking about when it's talking about death. Death is more than just not breathing. Death is a state of being in which you are cut off from a life-giving relationship. And as a human being, the most important relationship you have is the relationship with your Creator, your relationship with God. And by default, that relationship is broken. By default, human beings live in a state of death, a state of being cut off from God, a state of being God-forsaken. That is the just and fair consequence of our rebellion against God. We are held hostage by death. And the only way we can be free is if someone pays a ransom to let us go. The only way we can be rescued from being God-forsaken is if someone is God-forsaken on our behalf. And that's what Jesus was doing on the cross for us. He was paying the ransom to set us free. He was tasting death, ultimate death, on our behalf. He was experiencing what it was like to be utterly God-forsaken so that we wouldn't have to be utterly God-forsaken. On the cross, God redirected His just and righteous wrath from sinners like us onto His own Son so that we wouldn't have to bear the weight of God's wrath ourselves. That's why the scene at the cross was so dramatic. That's why the dark clouds assemble overhead in the middle of the day. That's why Jesus cries out, "'My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?' Quoting one of the Psalms to express how he feels. That's why, as his body shuts down and dies, he doesn't just silently pass away, He screams, and the earth shakes. That's why the centurion says immediately afterwards, surely this man was the Son of God. Because Jesus went to the cross to experience the wrath of God for sinners like us. There's one more thing I haven't mentioned. Have a look in verse 38. Just as Jesus died, the temple curtain... Is miraculously torn in two from top to bottom. What does this mean? Well, prior to Jesus' death on the cross, the way to access God was through the temple, the Jewish temple, which meant that if you wanted access to God, you a needed to be a Jew and b you needed to offer animal sacrifice for your sin. You weren't allowed into the temple yourself. Only a priest was allowed in on your behalf and there was a big curtain in the temple that represented the division between God and man. The temple represented God's dwelling place and the curtain in the temple represented a giant keep-out sign. It represented the separation between humanity and God. But Jesus' death on the cross ushers in a new age the age of the kingdom of God. Jesus' death does away with the old symbolic animal sacrifices because he himself was the sacrifice that all the animal sacrifices pointed towards. The temple in which God symbolically dwelled has been burst open. The dividing curtain between God and humanity has been torn in two. And now people from every tribe and tongue and nation, people like the centurion, are now, wo- are now welcome to come and worship the King and to find salvation from God's wrath in His Son, Jesus. So you see, Jesus' death wasn't a tragedy. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't an anticlimax. It was what the Son of God came to this earth to do. That's why Jesus didn't save himself from the cross. That's why God didn't save him from the cross. God didn't save his own beloved son from the cross so that he could save us. So here's what that means for us today. Firstly, the cross is a continual teacher and reminder for us. The cross shows us and continually teaches us that God is both perfectly just and perfectly loving at the same time. Because God is perfectly just, He can't tolerate sin. He must punish sin, and He must punish it fairly. He would be a corrupt judge if He just swept all our sin under the carpet. The cross teaches us that God is just, because on the cross, God executed His justice on His own Son. But also, the cross teaches us that God is perfectly loving for the same reason. On the cross, God executed His justice on His own Son instead of us, because He loves us. That's not to say that He hates His Son. He loves His Son with a perfect and eternal love. I can't imagine what it would have been like like for God to break that infinitely perfect love with His own Son, even for a second. It would accord us to them infinite pain. But He went through that pain in order to save us because He loves us. The cross teaches us of God's justice and love. And that also reminds us of how sinful we are because it costs the death of the Son of God to save us. But it also reminds us of how loved we are. But secondly... The cross means that no matter who you are or where you've come from or what you've done, God's salvation is freely available to you today. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, you can be rescued from the state of death. You can be freed. Jesus was punished so that you wouldn't have to be. Jesus has paid the ransom. You just have to accept it. And the way you accept this gift Is by making Jesus your King, by inviting Him into your life and by pledging total allegiance to Him. When Jesus is your King, the leader of your life, the one you listen to and obey, then everything that belongs to Him now belongs to you, including life and salvation and a relationship with God. But here's the real tragedy. Not many people accept this gift. So many people choose to reject Jesus and to remain in a state of death under God's wrath. And so I plead with you this morning, if you have not accepted Jesus as your King yet, do it now, before it's too late. On Tuesday night, we had the final night of the life course, and on that night, I invited people to pray with me to accept Jesus as their king. And I prayed a fairly simple prayer. I said something like, Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I deserve to be punished by you. I'm sorry for what I've done. I want Jesus to be my king. Thank you that you sent him on a cross, to die on a cross for me. Amen. Now, if you can pray something as simple as that and mean it, suddenly your relationship with God changes just like that. Your eternal destiny is turned upside down. And excitingly for me, uh, on Tuesday night, someone prayed that prayer. Hallelujah. Someone crossed over from being God-forsaken to God-loved. And they could do that because of the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, was God forsaken for us? And so I invite you this morning if you've never asked Jesus to be your king, if you've never prayed anything like that prayer before, pray it today. I'm going to pray that prayer now. You're welcome to make this prayer your own and pray it in your heart to God as I pray. Let's pray. Dear God, Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you sent your Son to die on the cross for a sinner like me. I don't deserve your mercy and your kindness, but I am so thankful that in spite of all that I have done, you still love me. And you have shown how much you love sinners like me on the cross. Please forgive me for all my sin. Please make your Son, Jesus, my King forever. In His name I pray. Amen.